Before we dive in, just wanted to give a quick shout out to Matrix Sport, the sponsor of this week's episode and one of the fastest growing, largest digital asset platforms based out of Asia. More on them soon to come. All right, what's up, everyone? Welcome to On The Margin. This week, I've got uh, as my guest, Mr. Tyler Neville in the hot seat. You know him from the roundup, but this week, we're going to be diving deep into his uh, big brain, the galaxy brain Tyler um, on this segment. So <laughs> I'm excited Jinxing. to have you here, buddy. Jinxing me. <laughs> no, uh, what I'm doing is setting up high expectations uh, and then like a pole vaulter, you're just going to hop right over. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. A little image for you. Before we get into it today, I want to tell you about something very, very exciting going on this August from the 11th through the 13th up in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. Now, if you're listening saying, huh, Bretton Woods, why is that familiar? That's because back in 1944, there was a conference there that literally decided the fate of the monetary system. That's where they decided to put the dollar at the center of everything. That's where they came up with the IMF and the World Bank. And right now, 70 or 80 years later, we're all looking around saying, hey, that monetary system they decided not working out so great for everyone. So we are hosting an executive only, very exclusive summit up there, capped at 250 people to be talking about the past, the present, and what the future of the monetary system looked like. Very, very exciting lineup. We've got many guests who are on the show, Grant Williams, Lynn Alden, Luke Groman, you name it. Head over to the website to check it out, www.blockworks.co. I'm gonna link it in the show notes too. Head over to the event page, you put in the code on the margin, you're gonna get 5% off, that is from me, Boom, click now, thank me later. All right, so before we get into it here, I'm sure folks probably know your background by now, but like, let's just do a quick quick background because we, we, we always talk on this segment, you always have such good ideas, but I think it'd be helpful for people to just get an understanding of like, how do you know so much about markets? So maybe talk for a little bit about the time that you spent uh, at kind of various funds. Yeah, so I started out of college, I went to Boston College uh, up in uh, the Northeast, and I was an English major. So that's where my tension mm. for writing came from. But uh, I jumped in, you know, typically in 2007 when I graduated. That was like the time where these investment banks were hiring like giant pools of kids. It was like they would come to the, the college, recruit, figure out if you had what it takes, and then kind of throw you in the mix with like 60 other kids. And I uh, interviewed at this place called KBW, Keith Bruett and Woods, which was a financial mm -hmm. services company. It was a brokerage, niche brokerage that just studied banks. So out of happenstance, I went from being an English major to basically working for like the perfect company you could work for in 2007, right before the financial crisis hit. Because they were studying, you know, they knew central banks, they knew regional banks. They were, I was doing research on regional banks in 2007 when I started. And we were seeing like these non-performing assets go skyrocketing. And no one had actually figured out that this, is, this has never happened before in these numbers. And KBW was like, what what's going on? Like, why aren't people paying their mortgages? And they called the recession first. Uh, out of all the investment banks, they were like, listen, there's something funky here. We're calling a recession, 2007-ish into 2008. Then in 2008, I went down to a hedge fund in Miami uh, where I worked as a trader there. And Miami was an interesting place to be because they had all these sky rises, like, huge, huge buildings they built with like massive leverage. And there was like 10 people living in all these buildings. And it was the epitome of ground zero of 
what happens when you over leverage yourself in a banking system is they, mm-hmm. they got all this debt, they built all these buildings and then no one could pay, you know, their mortgages when, when it came due. And I saw firsthand basically everything plummet when I was down in Miami um, at this hedge fund. It was really fascinating because I could underbid. I was living in a basically a penthouse suite fully furnished for $800 a month because no one else could afford to live in these buildings. It was crazy. Um, and now if you go to them, you know, Francis Suarez has filled them. This was in Brickle. All these buildings are absolutely packed. They're probably like million dollar apartments. It just shows like what money printing does. And when you can fill the aggregate demand with like central banks, uh, money printing, but I, I think I'm going down a rabbit hole, but it all gets to one point. So I went from, uh, the sell side to a hedge fund to another hedge fund in Boston, then went to Franklin Templeton in California, which was like this aircraft carrier of assets. Mm. And when you see, I was trading like normally like a billion dollar hedge fund is like, you think it's big. That that's not a big pile of capital. Like you trade a couple hundred thousand shares, maybe a million shares at a, a billion dollar hedge fund. At Franklin, you get orders for like, I don't know, 10 million shares of Microsoft, which is like, you're buying like 10% of like these massive companies. And so I figured out that like, that's these giant aircraft carriers of, of capital are really what decides the value of stocks and bonds in the marketplace. And that place really formed my view of markets because number one, they were one of the best active managers on the planet for like 30 years. And they just got killed by all the black, the pressure from BlackRock cutting fees. So they could just cut fees and do less due diligence on stocks and they would take market share. And that's still going on today. Um, it's pretty, that's so great. Yeah. That's so, I actually, I've never even heard you articulate it like that because that perfectly informs, uh, two of your main things, right? Which is kind of big, uh, passive, uh, completely changing market structure and then pensions and the pension funding problem and how much that's driving markets. Um, and I've learned yeah. so much, uh, on those topics from you, maybe we could start with kind of the rise of passive and what big, I love your word, mega corporations are doing, kind of constricting the flow. Talk a little bit about the rise of passive, how that's changing market structure, what your thoughts are there. Yeah, well, basically, let's see, how far should we go back on market structure? Like, you know, go back, baby. 30, go back. 30 years ago, when you went to buy a stock, you'd call up you know, your broker and you'd say, Hey, buy a hundred shares of this. They'd call the guy down at the stock exchange floor and they'd say, Hey, buy, you know, a hundred shares of this. He'd run to the the pit, buy a hundred shares and mark. Like, so that market structure was like very human based. It there was lots of, there was a hurdle rate to get your order into the system. When everything went electronic, uh, that created pricing pressure on the commissions and fees that middlemen would take. Right. And so that kept falling and then you started trading with algorithms, right? And algorithms slowly disintermediated humans because they're like, well, why would I pay this guy five cents a share when I could pay it through an algorithm at, you know, half a penny. So that it's a slow, um, death by a thousand cuts again of the human nature in, in marketplaces. And when you can 
cut fees, you gain scale, right? You gain market share. And if you can do things cheaper, it, you can, it's just like the Uber model for taxis where if Uber can do things cheaper and take a loss, they gain market share. And that's really the same exact thing that's happening in asset management. The, the problem I see is that when a lot of the people that did the due diligence on these stocks from sell side, who's getting paid less commissions to active management, which is getting less fees, the due diligence goes out the door and you end up just spraying capital at to all these, I call them sociopath CEOs that just create, a, create narratives and it's not real growth and they manufacture earnings through like financial engineering essentially. Um, so it just turns into this big game in, in poor capital allocation. That's why guys like Jim Chanos are like, this is the golden age of fraud because the market structure, they've sacrificed a lot of, they, their pricing pressure came down and they sacrificed due diligence for you know scale. And that's pretty much what we see across any industry, whether it's you know Facebook that's doing horrible things you know, at scale, I think it kills society and creates all sorts of coping mechanisms. Same thing, capital markets, you know, anywhere you go where you cut fees to zero, I think someone can't get paid a, a fee to do the proper due diligence and do the right thing. So that's sort of one of my themes. Yeah. I, you know, I think Warren Buffett's uh, you know, explanation of how bubbles get formed, it's a good idea that gets carried to excess, right? So you could look back at the, the housing bubble that you were talking about at the beginning of this, this episode and say, it's a good idea to own a home, right? That unlocks financial opportunity for you. What happens when you carry that idea to excess is that everyone should own a home and then it's everyone should own two homes. And that's when the whole bubble blows up. So passive investing to me seems like a great idea. People should have better, cheaper access to the market. But now you've kind of taken that to a logical extreme or an illogical extreme where the vast majority of the float of, you know, U.S. traded companies are owned by these guys that are never going to sell unless there's essentially a broad market sell off. Right. Unless these get big passives get outflows. So it almost just looks like this is just a good idea that got taken to such a crazy extreme that you're starting to see like these crazy things happening in these super low float stocks like uh, GameStop and AMC. That's kind of a direct ca cause, right? Absolutely. And I think we're seeing more of it. And it's not just GameStop and AMC. It started with GameStop and now it's AMC, it's Bed Bath & Beyond. It's, uh, I think it happened in Palantir, Schrodinger. Like there's all these different stocks in that have the low float problem and, and get that, you know, yeah. big, like, and this is just a natural, what it really is, is it's over diversification. When passive has outperformed everything because it's like a giant magnet and you're forced to basically invest in passive. And if you can't keep up with it, you have to take crazy risks. So I think this is just the logical step that like people have realized there's when there's no outflows that convexity of every additional dollar going into uh, a small float stock creates that parabolic move. Yeah. Can we just appreciate for a second if Blockbuster uh, was still around today, how much would that thing be ripping? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, my God. 
Right? They'd be able to compete with Netflix. They're, they're, yeah. They'd be valued at $100 billion because of the, uh, there's so much nostalgia in that name. I feel like that would be the most logical one to get bid up. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's creating some weird incentives. Um, in, Absolutely. Sure. At the end of the day, what, what I've been trying to like do some rough math on it, which is I, I was looking at the equity issuance just recently from Ed Yardini, and it's like, I think it's up, upwards of like 500 billion, which is actually in the big psych, scheme of cycles. That's a lot of issuance that has come to market, but compared to the money printed, which is like $10 trillion, that's dwarfing any sort of like supply of, of new, I guess, financial securities. So there's too much capital and not enough ideas. And that is like another big theme is that all these baby boomers want to save money. They don't really want to go out and invest in risk. And that creates that low float problem. And it's slowly, as long as the government is there providing that incremental, you know, stock to yeah. flow, it creates the pushes people further and further out on the risk spectrum. And that's really what we're seeing. And I think this big sell-off in Bitcoin was really just like a fundamental shift from China, which I said, but it, had that not happened, I think we still would have been kind of like going up uh, massively. What's going on, everyone? Excited to talk to you about one of my favorite new companies in the space, a company called Matrixport. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know we spend a lot of time talking about this crazy environment of low yields that we're all living in. The big question is, if inflation is around the corner, how are we all going to protect our wealth? Well, Matrixport has some really, really interesting solutions I think you should check out. And the big thing is, they, they do so many things, it's almost hard to cover everything in 30 or 45 seconds or whatever we have here. Two things that I want you to walk away with. One, they allow you to earn up to 30% yield. Two, they are leveling the playing field between institutional and retail investors. A little bit of background about this company. They are one of the fastest growing platforms based out of Asia. The really cool thing about these guys, they're literally a one-stop shop. Everything you need, custody, spot trading, OTC, fixed income, structured products, lending, asset management. These guys literally do it all. When they walk me through the demo, my jaw was on the floor the entire time. Here's what they've basically done. All those crazy structured products that are available to institutions that allow them to earn so much yield, they've basically taken them, packaged them up in a way that anyone can understand it, and they made it available to their entire audience of investors. That is just a freaking awesome thing to do, very cool mission, but also it allows you to manage your risk in a super sophisticated way and earn huge, huge yields on this platform to protect you from the pernicious effects of inflation. So for example, you can start earning 30% in APY on USDC today if you go to onthemargin.link slash matrixport. Again, that is onthemargin.link slash matrixport. I don't know what you're waiting for. Go check them out. Thank me later. I mean, it's it's kind of like the good idea carried to excess thing, right? And and when an idea gets big enough, or when it's part of the social contract or fabric of society, the government will eventually come in and and stabilize things should they falter, right? Mm -hmm. So at, at some point, they decided that um, it was in the American social contract that people should own a house, right? So when that the housing market falters, typically the government tries to step in because of what's going on with this excessive money printing and everything that you can't save money in a bank anymore. I mean, that idea is literally dead. That's you're lighting money on fire. Negative real rates has been for a long time. So basically mm -hmm. the accepted way to save is going in the stock market. 
And guess what? There are all these vehicles now that just enable you to get cheap, broad access to the stock market. And I feel like once, once that has become an idea, the government can't let it fail because you're absolutely right. It's all these boomers retirement and they can't have this, this, this whole class of people going into retirement and having 50% less money than they thought they would. So yeah. And look at who was talking to the fed uh, during March, 2020, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock was at the table, basically deciding the, the giant bailout, just like they did in 2008. And I just don't think that's like any millennial. This is really sad. I, I, I hate to pit millennials over boomers, but like, that's a conflict of interest. You did it twice in 12 years. And it's like bailing out the very people that are creating these like real big imbalances. Cause part of the reason we fell so hard in 2020 was because of the passive effect is they got outflows, you know? And, and so he immediately goes from being the, the, the goat, like the, the worst person in the market because he would have caused like a real crash. The passive outflows would have caused a real crash if they just let it go. And he's the biggest beneficiary of it now. It's, it's crazy to me. And like boomers don't really like, they don't see the, the conflict of interest or maybe they're just, they don't care because it's their retirement at risk. But for us, for, for millennials are trying to kind of like stay ahead of the inflation. It makes it incrementally harder. And here's the last thing that I really like hate about the whole passive thing. It's like, what if I don't want to invest in what Mark Zuckerberg is doing? What if I don't think that like Google is doing like a social good at this point? You can't, it's hard to stay ahead when like all the money is forced in there. How do you stay ahead of the financial inflation of Google stock, of Facebook stock, of you know Amazon stock? And you, you, you can't, you're forced to give these guys your money basically just to stay because you don't get paid, you know, you can't save enough because you have zero rates on your savings account. So, and then these guys get this super benefit from being the biggest market weights in these ETFs. So it's like, where do you put your money? And for me, existentially, you have had a couple of private companies that do like really good things, like solve real problems. And then I, I put it in crypto because like, that's a lot like the same lines of like who I am as a person, but like the majority, I think we've detached what investment is from our social contract is like, if I don't like what that person is doing as a CEO, you're still so forced to invest in them because of that over diversification effect of passive. You know what I mean? I agree with you, but I am going to push back a little bit because I kind of doubt okay. that if, if money was being actively managed, that a lot of these active managers would really care that much about the social good. So it, it's kind of like almost in, in markets, like the, one of the, the arguments of more traditional market makers versus high frequency traders is that in the event of like a big pullback or when liquidity gets sucked out, there's this idea that the market makers are going to jump in, whereas the algorithms will just stop trading. And that doesn't really play out in markets because everyone's afraid and no one's really that altruistic at the end of the day. And they're bailing too. And I, I kind of think, and like, if you actually look at big, you know, popular trends around more traditional hedge funds and investors, like, what are they investing in? They're like talking about this pop that's going to come in oil, right? And they're going to, they're going to pile money into Exxon. And it's like, I don't know, at the end of the day, I, I just don't think that even for an active manager, they're set up to really care that much about the social good. I think it's, 
So I, I'm not Fair. sure. I, I would gently yeah. push back on, on that. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that. No, I, 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 maybe that's the way it's always been at the end of these cycles. I think my problem now is that the Fed is is really like lighting. It's putting gasoline on gasoline on the fire. And, and maybe that's where the the actual argument comes from. Is like you don't. You're. It's like you're. Who did I just listen? Howard Mark said this on um, O'Shaughnessy's podcast the other day. He was Great like, episode. if you put out fires, forest fires, at every single tiny like little forest fire, it's going to create a conflagration that's going to burn everything down. And that's sort of what we're seeing. If you, you just got to let it take its natural course, you can't put out every recession. And we're just we're constantly doing that. And I really think the incentive is because the politicians are all 70 years old and, and higher, they're like, well, my buddy needs his retirement and he can't take a haircut on it. So, and then we're all sitting here like, well, you know, look, look at this. What millennial can buy a house now? I mean, oh. I'm, I'm an older contingent of millennials and I, I got lucky enough to, to buy one before this huge inflation. But like, think about, your net worth has to go up 40% this year to stay up with the housing inflation. That's how, like, housing probably went up 40% this year. Like, how crazy I know. is that? No, I know. But that's not in the CPI, so they don't pay attention to it. Yeah. I mean, I think they're, like, yeah, the CPI thing has never really made a lot of sense to me. Like, people look at real rates as being inflation minus CPI, but it totally depends on what you're buying. Like, it's just funny to me that, that people like, oh, uh, you know, these big pensions are losing money on their bonds now. It's like pensions aren't going out and spending money on rent, right? What are they buying? They're buying other financial assets. The rate of inflation shouldn't be the freaking CPI for a pension or a big fund. It should be the rate of inflation on other yeah. financial assets. There's your real rate. So basically, they've been losing money on bonds, you know, from a yield perspective for a long, for a long time. I don't know. Yeah. It's just... It's funny, um, but you know what? I think you're going to be vindicated at the end of the day. Uh, there's been some signs, like I forget. I think I texted you this weekend. Like, there's just kind of that funny article, like BlackRock got called what well, you just referenced six times. You know, during uh, in in March of 2020, there was that very telling. So, when people like BlackRock are buying up all these single family homes, the original article that was written was just pensions are doing it. BlackRock gets mentioned once, but BlackRock suddenly is at the forefront of every single title on media. No one called attention to that. It's like, why is everyone picking on BlackRock? I think you're right. I think they're just moving to the forefront of the zeitgeist and mm. they're looking like this big faceless corporation that's not doing good stuff. So I think you're, I think you called something early here. I think you're right. Well, yeah, I don't know if I did or you know, this is just a giant cycle thing, but I think Kirill Sokolov, he, he, he said in one of his newsletters, the, the heroes of this generation are the villains of the next generation. That's just always how it, it usually is. It's just sad that like, I just, they don't see it for themselves. Like, I think everybody in those seats don't, they think they're doing such good. And at extremes, it kind of works in reverse. So we'll, we'll see if we get vindicated. We, I mean, if we don't, We'll just all end up working for BlackRock, so that's cool. I guess we'll have a great, you know, benefit package. <laughs> well, Tyler, when someone gives you the ability to call it that you were right, you don't question it, man. You just take it. You stick your flag in the in the ground. You yeah, say, "I called it, dude." That's your own <laughs> thing. You gotta, you gotta have some humility here. 
then I wouldn't be a trader. That's the time where the stock goes against you. You're like, you end up, uh, yeah, looking like a fool. There are some sorts of gods like that. The karma gods, uh, the golf gods, you start making fun of your buddy on the course. Boom. Oh, it's yeah. Your turn next. Yeah. That's just science. I don't think you can even debate that. Yeah. Um, ready, yeah. ready for one more of my themes that I think. Yeah. I think most people hear it in some of the newsletters, but like this is firsthand. Like at, at Franklin, they had this they had this giant fund called the Franklin Income Fund, run by like the most brilliant guy I've ever met in capital markets. This guy's like ten times smarter than anybody I've ever worked with, and it, he basically he was the beneficiary of a generation of capital inflows into you know, yield generating funds. Like he owns, he is one of the biggest managers of, of funds in the country. Like him, Will Danoff at Fidelity. Um, there's a couple other guys, but they're like, so trading for him, he, he's essentially a short volatility fund. So like he trade, he takes equities and he basically turns them into bronze uh, bond proxies by shorting volatility. So like you sell calls, covered calls on like equity positions and you generate a couple extra percentage yield over single stocks. But like when you do that with a hundred billion dollars, I think you just like, you lower the volatility in the overall market across the entire marketplace. And you create, it, it's like such efficiency, but it also takes out like, Anybody who's competing against that can't compete. You're like Shaq in his prime dunking on people left and right, which is like a sports reference that you probably don't get. But like it, this guy basically like puts his, you know, line in the sand and says, this stock is worth this and it's not worth anything more than this. And that's what the value is. And like he has that power because he is, he can bully people. He could buy a stock, you know, at, 10 bucks and that's not going any lower than 10 bucks. You know, he is, he could buy 10 gazillion shares there. And so these are the forces in the marketplace that kind of control the value of things. And just to generate a little bit of extra yield, you have to short, you short vol and you create these short vol proxies. And I think strategies like this are mimicked across the market just to generate extra yield. And what, what my read on, on it is, is that to scale, it actually stifles innovation. When all you're doing is you're, yeah. you're not creating anything new. You're just taking yeah. a little piece of like income from somebody else. That's what derivatives do. It's like, you're not innovating. You're not creating any future growth. And, and that's kind of synopsizes like where we are, like baby boomers, want to invest in that because it's safe. It's higher up in the capital structure. You're buying bonds and, you know, it's very safe equities that have seen, you know, have very stable growth and give money back to shareholders, but it doesn't help the future. And so the future, because of that is short, it, it the future will be long volatility, I think, because you, you're going to be forced at some point to invest in stuff because you'll need to to stew growth. So that's why private markets are kind of ripping. I think that's a long volatility proxy because like you can't control those outcomes. It's mm. you know, it's very volatile. And I think crypto is another way to play that like short vol to long vol type thing. And but but the majority of what baby boomers are doing 
it's just kind of stifling the volatility of like the the public market and that's why we see you know the yield to worst of the high high yield bond markets at like 3.75 i think like they're handing you money to go innovate right now and so that's that's the short vol to long vol thesis that is man i'm glad we got into this the that's one of my favorite things that i've actually picked up from you is this idea of like the world kind of going long vol now and just vol repression and i totally agree with you it doesn't seem very productive even People talk about extracting yields, right? That's usually the word that they want to extract yield from the market. And that's like, mm -hmm. you're quote unquote creating efficiency, but you're really just shuffling stuff around a lot of the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, and like, we, we've talked about this uh, kind of before, um, but you know, where does yield really come from? I am like working through this thesis in my head, it, it comes from the expectation of future growth. Because if you think about what would make me issue debt and what would set the price that I would like, let's say, I don't know, I'm the co-founder of a media company and I want to raise some money. I say, well, what am I going to get? You know, let's say I want to raise a million dollars in debt. Well, how much do I think I can return on that? If I think I can return two or $3 million, I basically don't care at how to price the debt. I'm super price insensitive, right? And that mm -hmm. creates yield, right? But when you don't think that there's real opportunities for growth, I'm like, ah, I'm not really sure what I'm going to put this money in. I'm not sure I'm going to get back. Like maybe I look for other things, right? And that encourages financial engineering. Right. And you talked about this with Ben Hunt, like you guys did a great breakdown. And he, he kind of said the ver a very similar thing, which is that people are doing a lot of financial risk taking right now, but they're not doing a lot of productive risk taking. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's, you know, in large part because of this weird suppressed volatility environment. Um, and certainly like large asset managers running these um, kind of sophisticated strategies that that's a part of it, but it's also central banking. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, and to get to the the final thesis that I talk about ad nauseum is this rotation from capital to labor. And because I think right. that's really, at the end of the day, markets, and this is what I really learned from that guy, Russell Clark, markets are a political decision at the end of the day. You, you, you're always just trying to steal pie from one another, especially when demographics are rolling over, they become a super, super political thing. And so that's why we're in this like fourth turning type situation. But when you have that financial engineering, you're, you're just, you know, levering up companies and you're taking your shares back. And it's all this like grad school nonsense of like, I can be smarter than the next guy, but you don't know what you're doing to society by doing it. Right. And for the, for those that are realizing it, in jumping ship from those big institutions to small institutions like like ours, you know we're the ones. It's slow. That slow migration is happening because you're not getting paid if you're staying at those mega corporations. You're just getting diluted. You know you have to wait for someone to die to get a promotion, and you, basically like capital is is just taking advantage of any of those big slow growing beasts you have to be at a small company to actually be in a meritocracy. And so I think labor is realizing that right now. And they're like, that's why they don't want to go back to work is they're not getting paid enough to keep up with the inflation of financial assets. And hell, the financial people aren't even keeping up with the inflation of financial assets. There's negative real rates. So like you can imagine labor being really pissed, right? If the financial people are sucking, and then the labor people are definitely sucking because they're like 10 steps behind. So 
I think that's why we're getting into this like very conflicting world of of politics, right? Where you're just going to have to we're going to steal from the big wealthy people that scaled their companies and really pounded labor to oblivion during this giant disinflationary period. And it's just that cycle is going to come all the way back and you know, labor shortages are going to cause higher wages, higher wages are self-reflexive, that's going to cause inflation. And it's just that cycle is going to feed on itself. And it's going to be a political beast. Like the politics of it all is, is really when the big regime shift changes. So like the past 30 years was all about like handing money and, and shareholder value and returning money to shareholders. This one, this next is going to be like, stakeholder value where it's like how do you lift everybody together and backed by big fiscal plans and you know as the political you know winds change and the baby boomers kind of like retire that those politics will start becoming more prevalent it's probably going to be a little bit more socialist of a policy um and government's going to play a bigger role otherwise like imagine if they just stopped like if they just stopped the printing and infrastructure, the market would just die. And that's what, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, like, no, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, 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 no, I'm completely with you. Um, and then it would be uh, a free market, though. <laughs> it would be a free market, and we'd all be uh, we'd all be eating shit. But yeah, it'd be free. I I don't know, man. I I actually feel the I feel for the central bankers. They're just trying to keep the whole thing going. You know, they're they're. I actually don't think they're evil people. I don't think they're oblivious. I don't think they're stupid. They, I think they realize it, but at this point, you're kind of just trapped, right? There's that line, it's like that William McChesney Martin, one of the long ago um, uh, chairman of the Fed, uh, he was like, the, the Fed's job is to take away, just as the party is going, to like take away the punch bowl. And mm. we've just so lost the opportunity to do, we're so far past um, yeah. that point. Um, but but let me ask let me ask you a couple of questions about the the labor versus capital um, you know thing. So, you know, one, um, how is this actually going to to play out in practice? Because I, I agree with you. I think the time is that like all right, you can see this moving into political discourse, right? There needs to be more focus on domestic issues within the United States, right? It's happening within other countries too. There's more like, hey, how are we going to feed our middle class again? And Trump. You know, for whatever you think of him, he was actually a big part in refocusing um, that light internally. How does that actually get fixed when there's still this gigantic, essentially working population over in, uh, you know, over in the East that's still willing to work for just that much cheaper? Like, do you think it has to be this overt political action? Like, like what does that end up looking like? Do we just say, hey, it's illegal to outsource for these industries? Like, does it get that extreme? Or like, how do you think it all ends up playing out? I think what what we're gonna start seeing is, I don't know if you've caught this, like there, there's the mainstream media is now caught up on following the daisy chain of where people make money. And, and companies like Nike who get goods from Xinjiang, which is like forced slave labor, they're just gonna figure out and that a lot of that stuff is not not a moral way to to conduct business and like at scale you're you're gonna have you're gonna do bad things and i think the media since the media ratings are dropping from trump being so i guess um 
what's the word, just like divisive. I think we're going to have to point that spotlight, that Overton window is going to move to giant organizations that are globalists, right? And I think that's what's going to drive the breakdown in reshoring of essentially American companies back to America because like they can't keep going on, on like this. Like we're, we're, we're 10 years past that. And I think Biden actually kind of knows that and he's going to use the fiscal MMT firepower at creating like an, a new America, which like they're, they're doing, I mean, the stock market's at all time highs. I've been wrong about it. I thought, I thought the bond bubble were burst would burst as like inflation kicks on. And right now I'm kind of looking like a moron, but like bond yields are ticking up. There's negative real rates and there hasn't been like this exodus of capital from that stuff. So Biden seems to have it in control along with, with Jay Powell for now. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how the big China thing plays out though. I wonder if um, you start to see some business model rationalization based on political will. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Like some guys, I forget who this quote is attributed to, but it's like every business model is unbundling and rebundling. Best way to like, honestly, the most relatable thing ever that's going on right now is streaming services, right? There, mm -hmm. there was like originally one and it was the unbundling, but now guess what? There are like nine streaming services that you, there's like Hulu, there's yeah. Peacock, there's YouTube TV. And then everyone's like, all right, well, I'm not, you know, I can't manage like 10 subscriptions. And you're starting to see, well, here's an idea. Like, what if we, you know, and each time there's a bundling and an unbundling, yeah. uh, there, there's a rationalization behind it. There's like, well, it makes so much more sense to unbundle because you get all this stuff right now you don't really need. And everyone's like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And then right now it's going to flip and it's going to be like, well, it makes sense to just kind of have everything you want under one roof. And everyone's like, that makes a lot of sense. So it's yeah. very like arbitrary <laughs> about business models and how they all work. And I feel like it just comes in vogue. And yeah. one thing, you know, we've talked about the impossible trilemma. There's an impossible trilemma in supply chain. Um, it's cost, quality, and speed. You can pick two, can't have all three. And essentially one of the things that I always wondered about, you know, if you're getting stuff from China or from Vietnam or from across the world, your speed sucks. And there's huge detriment to that. So there was a, there was an article, I don't know if you just saw, this doesn't really have to do with this, but uh, steel, there's like $70 billion of, of uh, steel being written off. And basically mm -hmm. when you have very, when you have capital tied up in, in assets that have a very long turnover time, you're at risk of having to write those down. So like fashion, right? Let's say I build like buy hundred million dollars worth of inventory that sits as an asset on my balance sheet. Right. Mm -hmm. But if I ever got to a point where it's like, shit, I don't think I can sell these things. That's a liability. And then that turns into a write down on your P and L. So I'm always wondering like, what if you just leaned super heavy into speed as an advantage and you were like, all right, I know it's going to cost more. I get it. It's going to cost more. It's going to cost more, but I just compete because I could churn stuff out faster. And I can, the cash conversion cycle, my company would be that much faster. You could see a company going big into American manufacturing, leaning into speed as an advantage. And then everyone would be like, oh, this is a really good idea. You know, I can see that yeah. happening. Um, and you get the capital markets that, behind you because they'll finance you at, you know, all the venture capital can finance you really cheaply. Yeah. Wouldn't that be cool? There'd be yeah. like manu American manufacturing again. That'd be yeah. cool. Um, yeah. They, the government needs to help out with that a little bit.
And I, th they I think they probably will. I think you're going to see these infrastructure plans just keep keep rolling, as long as they got the bond market, you know, in check. Yeah, but I think so. That that'll be one of those those offshoring to to reshoring themes. That's going to be the next twenty years of of our lives. I think. Huge. Imagine. I mean. Like we're kind of watching this in, in crypto right now, just looking at this massive, I mean, people generally underestimated uh, how difficult it would be to move all this mining hardware out of China and it's looking for new homes, essentially. The cost of rebuilding or reorganizing global supply chains yeah. is nuts, is yeah. crazy. <laughs> Oh, I, I mean, I don't even know how you tackle a problem like that, to be totally honest. But actually, you know, I think that supports your argument about uh, labor, right? Value kind of uh, accruing to labor versus capital. That's a very labor-intensive thing. You literally oh, yeah. need to freaking build new factories. Yeah. I and I think, you know, this past 20 years of investment has really been kind of like an academic-driven hey, let's invest invest in the, the capital light infrastructure, capital light business that can scale forever, like a Facebook, right? And we've abandoned financing like real stuff because it's too expensive. You know, when you're comparing consumer internet businesses that are like are super cheap to start, takes a couple people and like write some code, you know, to the moon relatively from like, you know, a steel industry. Like you, you really need big government incentives to change those things. And that's what we'll, we'll, we should see. You know, if you don't see that, then like maybe China just runs our show. <laughs> maybe China becomes a new superpower and we just are like, you know, still trying to churn out stuff from the next Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, possibly. I mean, there is something uh, almost like arbitrary about tastes of the time. Like, yeah, people love these, like, SaaS business and software and recurring revenue and stuff. People yeah. eat that up. But you know what? Like, okay, I don't know why I always pick on Snowflake. Remember that company, Snowflake? And it debuted, it was, like, valued at 100 times earnings. And everyone's like, but think about how profitable it's going to be. Dude, it, it's, what are its revenues? The revenue is, like, a couple hundred million bucks. So you'd have to go to, like, you know, at the end of the day to back into this valuation, right? It's like you years. would have to have, like... Yeah, oh, it would actually, you'd have to be like $50 billion worth of earnings at like 70% gross margins. Well, guess what? Those companies exist. They're called pharmaceutical companies and they're valued at like one-tenth what, what this company might do if it <laughs> succeeds through its like wildest dreams, you know? Yeah. So there's something like, I love looking at that stuff, like just really arbitrary stuff that people like back into and rationalize really hardcore. Um yeah. No offense. Heard, stuff like, like I love market historians on this stuff where me too. the market gloms on to like narratives and funds certain type of companies. Like the whole Mike Milken thing, I got to do more work on that cuz I I think the backbone of like the high yield market getting created has created the boom bust cycle in American American markets in society where that keep keep the money flowing get funded pensions need yield and then you fund these like hmm. new things and now i think it's moving to bitcoin first of all but uh but then you build the infrastructure with high yield bonds and then creates a narrative it gets global capital behind it and then you know everything busts 
and then it sets the the next the next cycle up to invest in another narrative. So that guy Brian Reynolds I interview says, you know, we've done it with you know the doc, you know, um, WorldCom and Enron. We did it with you know commodities. We did it with subprime, and now we're, he thinks we're moving into to basically subpriming Bitcoin, creating bond-like proxies of certain types of assets to build the infrastructure. And it's it really is the the driving force behind a lot of the change in in our world. I agree. Um, I want to get into that interview, and I also just want to ask you, like, maybe transitioning now to the, to the latter half here, just, like, talk about Bitcoin. Like, you know, for, for a guy who spent, uh, you know, about the better part of a decade, you know, in very traditional sort of markets, uh, which are only now just starting to kind of come around about the potential of Bitcoin, um, I it's pretty unique, you know, that you moved to a company that was, this was kind of the sole focus, right? Um, or maybe explaining yeah. it, but... I mean, talk to us a little bit like what gave you that sense of conviction and how do you as, as a guy with maybe a more traditional kind of macro perspective, how do you look at Bitcoin and, and kind of crypto as an asset class in general? I view it as just a, a hedge from everything that the, the financial world created. And it's uh, essentially, well, it's a couple things. It's a new technology. So you get the venture theme, you get the store of value theme, since I came from being like somewhat of a gold bug. And you're, you're betting against essentially central, central banks in, in fiat currencies, which, you know, if you look at central bank balance sheets in, in one chart, and Ed Yardini does a great job at this, it's just up and to the right. And we're really just living in a giant Ponzi scheme, but you can't really call it that because they're, you know, central banks and so Bitcoin is all those things wrapped into one for me. Um, you know, I, I don't get the technology like, you know, somebody on the ground floor, like a software programmer would, but like for me, you need ways to express giant macro themes and that kind of hits everything. Um, you know, yeah. Greg, Greg Foss even calls it like, it's like a sovereign CDS. Like, so if, if sovereign yields actually rise, Bitcoin could become a proxy, like a, a, a basically insurance policy for everything that is short volatility, which are central banks. So that, that kind of led me there. I started investing in like 2014. Um, and like a typical trader, I sold in the 2017, you know, run up and then didn't buy in enough uh, <laughs> after it sold off. So, um, but but it's it's a really fascinating thing to me that I, I realize like you need to be a part of a growth industry. If you're not, it's probably the most depressing thing because you end up trying to add all this value at any other like legacy corporation and you really don't get paid for your, your value, I think. Um, there's some people might say they do if they find a good seat, but I mean, I talk to people every day in the legacy financial world that are just like this, they're dying fees are getting cut. And this is the only place where like there, there is a gap to the on-ramps and there, if you have pricing power where you can charge like fees to manage, which you can, like there's, there's funds charging three, three and 30 in 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 bitcoin right now in in decentralized finance like i think think pantera does that so that's a sign that like 
there's performance there, right? If you can charge high fees, just like Warren Buffett says, there's a sign that there's a secular tailwind. Um, and also everything about the legacy financial world is just like, it's kind of boring to me, you know? People have been doing the same thing for 30 years and there's really no disruption and they think it's all the same and it's it's not dynamic. And the funny part is, is that all of them want, want this, it's like, it's this ego trip and it, it, it gets a, um, it breeds a, a certain type of person that is so meticulous on like really, really tiny details, but have trouble seeing the big picture of things. And it's like a very controlling mentality. And I think like consulting and other, other stuff like that does that too. And I don't really have that. You know, I'm almost the opposite where I can see like really big picture things. I just don't care about like a decimal point. And that, that sort of led me away And my, my justification for that. Maybe it's my own like existential justification, but like who, when you're trying to make things like just a decimal point more efficient, what the hell are you doing with your life? You're not doing anything original. You're not doing anything original with your life. You're just making this much alpha for the guy above you. So like, you yeah. gotta take a chance. You got, you gotta try to do something new. Otherwise, like well, what happens when you die? Like you sit on your deathbed and you just live the same life that some other guy did. Like you, you gotta, that's what Bitcoin is to me is, is an expression of new things and creativity and long fall. Like all those things are what it means to be human. And I think we spent the past 300 years in a left brain mentality, which is like making things more efficient, kind of like financial engineering, everything. And the next 300 years and of, of demographics and everything will lead to like a more long volatility, creative human nature. If humans are to survive, like that's what it needs to be. Maybe that's too. No, no, no. I no, dude. I completely agree with you. I, you know, it's you. You see it pop up in almost like memes if you follow those like liquid liquidity or whatever. It's like the please fix, and everyone's got stories. Like I've got tons of friends who are still in iBanking and private equity, and it's like, you know, this MD is like screaming at me because I like didn't put the right shape on the PowerPoint, and you know why they care so much because that has become the value add, right? There, there's not this insane growth anymore. It's like that's suddenly the value add. You know, when, when you stop, it's like when your thing that you're selling, your service becomes commoditized, you don't bring the price down, you try to value add up. And when you run, that's, that's their attempt at doing that. Like we never make mistakes. Our shit is formatted perfectly. And it sounds like silly when you say it like that, but that's really what drives that because those industries are overall in, in structural decline. And yeah. what, in my my thought process here, um, e even when you look at crypto, which I think is so silly how divided it is in between like the Bitcoin maxi kind of community. And then there's like the ETH community. There's all these other little communities. And what I think the Bitcoin maxis kind of get wrong is they point to central banks as the problem and central banks aren't the problem. The problem is that there isn't enough growth. If there was growth, the central banks wouldn't be printing. So you're missing the point. I think you're missing the point. If you are like those evil central bankers, like if we didn't have them, everything would be honky dory. 
No, it wouldn't because then you'd just be sitting in a no growth environment and everyone would be freaking miserable. It'd be fair, but everyone would be unhappy too. So the reason why I'm so bullish on like the DeFi stuff is because that is real, genuine, bonafide growth. And mm -hmm. if you're looking at that thinking that's part you're missing, I'm sorry, you're missing the point because the point is growth in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, there's growth there because look at the rates they can charge or they, they can give on stable coins, right? 8%. That, I mean, if they can pay that there's growth there, right? So that's what I'm saying. Yes. Yes. Completely agree. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying, baby. <laughs> So, oh my god, yeah! I got I gotta watch myself. I gotta mod moderate my own uh, emotion here. There's, shoot, I wish I could remember the name of this guy, but he comments on the YouTube and he, he called me out. He called me out the other day. He was like, yeah, Mike was so bullish uh, the other day, and now he's all bearish. He was jumping out of his seat, you know, six weeks ago talking about the special funds. And you know, I read that comment. I was like, damn, this guy is so right. <laughs> He just called me. He totally called me. So now I got to stay on my, yeah, now I got. Yeah, you can't uh, get, never, never let a win get, go to your head or a loss to your heart, Mike. <laughs> yeah, all right. That's, um, that's great. Well, I don't know. Um, yeah, honestly, this is, this has been a ton of fun because usually we're just kind of covering the, uh, the topics of the week and I, I get to hear your kind of round thoughts and, and how these topical things fit in there. But yeah, it's great to just hear you flesh these these theories out. And in general, I was playing devil's advocate a little bit there, but I completely yeah, agree with you. I really, I enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's always nice when I can talk about myself for what is that? 45 minutes, 45 minutes. Baby. Hopefully people don't get sick of me. I don't think they will. I don't think yeah. they will. Um, I actually do want to use the, this five minutes here to do a little special uh, shout out to Alison Reichel, whose podcast launched today. It is mm -hmm. Wednesday, the 29th. No, it's Tuesday, it launched today. Uh, the first guest was Lily Frankis. So if you guys like this, you should definitely go check it out. Show us some love. It's great stuff. Um, the future of finance and crypto. The future of France. It's a little fun <laughs> joke, right? People, it's so fun. I do the, this guy, Spencer Bogart, shout out Spencer. They just raised like $300 million over blockchain capital, whatever. He's yeah. on this interview on Bloomberg, and he means to say DeFi is the future of finance, but what he said was DeFi is the future of France. Croissant. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. That's amazing. I don't think that's ever going to fully go away. That's like a hodl thing, the future of France. Um, I'm surprised uh, the hodl thing, that, that's just going to stay. I thought that was going to be a, a flash in the pan, but definitely not. That's here. Totally. I think those things, like, it probably is, you, a lot of people that I follow that I respect a lot. I mean, the idea of investing in cults, communities that, like, develop their own lingo and words and stuff like that. I think a lot of people look at that and say, yeah, what's going on here? I don't like this. But I do think that's a sign of there really being something there. Mm -hmm. You can, you know... Um, yeah, I, I agree. Know. I agree. Yeah. It's like the Tesla thing. It's like, you know, never, never short uh, a stock that has a cult like following. You know, who's a guy who doesn't mind volatility? Elon hmm. Musk. <laughs> That's the show. That guy's the guy who doesn't mind volatility. Yeah. Uh, because, whoa, boy. 
Um. Yeah. You know what's so funny? Here's the last thing I got to say. But like a guy like Elon Musk can be the CEO of, you know, SpaceX and Tesla and God knows what else and sit on boards or whatever. And how come your average employee can't work two jobs? You ever wonder about that? It's like, how come some CEOs can sit on like five boards and like decide the fate of like Fortune 500 companies, but like your average worker, there's like non-competes to working two jobs. You're like, how does that work? Huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm with yeah. you. Not that I'm incentivizing anybody. I think <laughs> it's better the other way, but it just seems funny, you know? It is, well, there's like yeah. that whole criticism of Jack at Square, uh, Jack at Square versus Twitter. And yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it kind of does seem like, you know, Twitter's or uh, Square's like actually the favorite family and Twitter's like kind of the mistress who lives in, you know, Secaucus. Secaucus. <laughs> Secaucus. <laughs> and, you know, you visit there, you know, like what's like Dollar Bill Stern, you know, he had like the two minivans uh, and he's got like his little secret family who doesn't, uh, not the public facing one. That's Twitter for Jack. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't know. I feel like Twitter's—you know—Twitter's got a cult-like following. They're gonna—they're gonna decentralize that somehow. Start paying I, creators. That's what I will say. Media game up. <laughs> they are—they're smoke. I mean, they're gonna put Clubhouse out of business with Spaces. It's yeah. pretty crazy. They—I mean, it's—you just feel it. They're—they're they're gonna smoke. They're gonna blow Clubhouse right out of the water. Um, Here's an interesting question about Clubhouse. First went went to a billion dollars. They kept it so cool and secluded and everything. And then they, I think it was like such an Andreessen, like I'm on top of the world type product. Like we create the value of social networks. And then really, <laughs> and this is gonna be like Clubhouse might be a zero. Yeah, it could be a zero. It's looking like it, to be totally honest. Yeah, you know it is funny because you're right. I actually I joined like decently late. Uh, cause I'm always late to new social stuff like this. And the, mm -hmm. when I first started listening, I was like, these conversations are like incredible. I, there was like a two week period where I was on clubhouse all the time listening. And then they just got literally was like the more people that got on the worse and worse yeah. and worse the conversations got. And it was, suddenly you just kind of wake up and you're like, wow, this sucks. <laughs> like, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, it, it did. Yeah. No, so. Fair. I don't know what's do with that information what you will, <laughs> but like, I don't know. Pretty soon our critics, like your boy, are going to be like, yeah, this block. I want to give him a shout out, actually. No, we were going back. He, he seems like a nice guy. Um, he's, he's, he's totally right. Um, yeah. All right, my man. This was a lot of fun. I will see you uh, in a couple of days for the roundup, buddy. All right. Take care, man.